Book Three, Chapter Four of *The Gambler* by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Three, Chapter Four. Serico smiled his acknowledgment of the granted permission, and departed in search of his uncle, while Barnard looked at Clodagh with amused interest. "If you can waive your prejudices against the milk baths, Mrs. Milbank," he said, "you'll find old Deerhurst quite a delightful person." "'But, of course, when one is very young, prejudices are adhesive things.' He finished his coffee meditatively, stealing a glance at her from the corner of his eye. She remained silent for a moment, tentatively fingering her cup. "'Do I seem so very young?' she asked at last, without raising her eyes. At the words he turned and looked at her fully. "'You know, Mrs. Milbank,' he said seriously, "'I am literally devoured by a desire to ask you your age. "'When I saw you come downstairs tonight, I felt, pardon the rudeness, "'like laughing in James's face when he introduced you as his wife. "'You scarcely look eighteen. "'But a little while ago, while you spoke of your life at Florence, "'I suddenly felt out in my calculations. "'Your face, of course, seemed just as fascinatingly young, "'but from your expression I could have believed you to be twenty-four. "'And now again... "'Please do be lenient to my impertinence. "'Now again, as you spoke to Serico, "'you look like a child turning the first page in the Book of Life. "'Are you an enigma?' "'During the first portion of his speech, Clodagh had looked grave, "'but at his last words she laughed with a touch of constraint. "'No,' she answered, "'I'm nothing half so interesting, "'and it's four years since I was eighteen. "'But hadn't I better get my cloak before Mr. Serico comes back?' With another slightly embarrassed laugh, she rose, and without waiting for Barnard's escort, walked out of the room. Ten minutes later, she descended the stairs, wrapped in a light evening cloak. Her cheeks were still flushed with excitement, and her hazel eyes were dark with anticipation. Yesterday, only yesterday, she had been a mere item in the secluded, unimportant life of the villa at Florence. Now, tonight, three men, each one of whom must in his time have known superlatively interesting and beautiful women, awaited her pleasure. As she stepped across the hall, Serico darted forward to meet her. "'This is very gracious of you,' he murmured. "'I hear it is your first evening in Venice.' She glanced up at him as they moved slowly forward across the hall. "'My very first evening,' she said softly, "'and I so want to enjoy it.' He paused deliberately and looked at her. "'May I take that as permission to make it enjoyable, if I can?' Her lashes drooped in instinctive, native coquetry. "'Aren't you going to introduce your uncle to me?' she said in a lowered voice. He looked at her, mystified and attractive. "'If I knew you better, Mrs. Milbank,' he began. But without replying, Clodagh moved away from him across the hall and out onto the terrace. There, transfixed by a new impression, she paused involuntarily. Venice is beautiful in the morning and exquisite in the twilight, but it is at night that the mystery of Venice, that most subtle of its many charms, enwraps and envelops it like a magic web. There is nothing in Europe to rival the literal, tangible romance of Venice at night, the faint, idle, infinitely suggestive lap of water against a thousand unseen steps. The secret darkness 
revealed rather than dispersed by the furtive, uneven lights shed forth from windows or open doors. The throb of music that seems woven into the picture, an inseparable, integral part of the enchanted life. All is a wonder and a joy. To Clodagh, with her inherent love of things mystic and beautiful, the scene was curiously impressive. In an ecstasy of appreciation, she stood drinking it in. Then, suddenly touched with the warm desire of sharing her sensations, she turned to her companion. "'Isn't it wonderful?' she said below her breath. Serico looked at her for a moment in puzzled doubt. Then he smiled indulgently. "'Yes,' he said vaguely. "'Yes, it, it is rather great, the water and the gondolas and all that sort of thing.' Her large, clear eyes rested on his face, then slowly returned to their scrutiny of the canal. A momentary sense of disappointment had assailed her. She was conscious of a momentary jar. But as she stood, silent and uncertain, a burst of low, throbbing music broke across the darkness, and at the same moment she became conscious of a large gondola gliding up to the hotel steps. With the excitement of anticipation, the cloud passed from her face. "'Come,' she cried. "'Come, I see Mr. Barnard.' It was at the head of the flight of stone steps leading to the water that Lord Deerhurst was introduced to her, and in the semi-darkness it struck her that he made a distinctly interesting figure, with his black hair worn a shade lower on the forehead than modern fashion permits, his pale, aristocratic, unemotional face, his cold, penetrating eyes, and the somewhat unusual evening clothes that fitted his tall figure closely, and by a clever touch of the tailor's art, conveyed the suggestion of a period more picturesque than our own. She studied him with deep attention, and bent her head in gratified acknowledgement of the profound bow with which he marked the introduction. A moment later he offered her his hand, and himself assisted her to the waiting gondola. With a pleasant, excited sense of dignity and importance, she passed down the steps and entered the boat, noting, as she took her seat, its costly and elaborate fittings, and the sombre livery of the two gondoliers. Then, as she leant back against the cushions, her eyes passed back interestedly to the three men to whom she owed the night's adventure. Lord Deerhurst came first, moving with a certain stiff dignity, and appropriated the seat by her side. Barnard and Serico followed, placing themselves on the two smaller seats that flanked the stern, and a moment later she saw the gondoliers swing lithely round into their allotted positions, and felt the gondola shoot out swiftly and silently into the dark waters. Following the custom of the place, they headed for the point where the idle and the pleasure-seeking of Venice gather nightly to listen to the music, and lazily watch the swaying paper lanterns of the musicians' gondolas. Clodagh sat silent as they skimmed onward. She was bending slightly forward, her whole attitude an unconscious typifying of expectancy. Her hands were lightly clasped in her lap, and again the hazel of her eyes was darkened by their dilated pupils. As the gondola slackened speed and the music became nearer, more distinct, Lord Deerhost, who had been covertly studying her, leant suddenly closer to her. "'You are a great appreciator of the beautiful Mrs. Milbank,' he said in his thin, high-bred voice. Clodagh started, and, glancing from one to the other of the three men, laughed shyly. "'Why do you say that?' she asked. "'Because I have presumed to watch your face.' 
She blushed, and Barnard, feeling rather than seeing her embarrassment, made haste to reassure her. "'Mrs. Milbank is an adept in the appreciation of beauty,' he said with a laugh. "'She was brought up on the study of it.' Again Clodagh coloured, and again she gave a shy laugh. "'If you say that, Mr. Barnard,' she said, "'I shall accuse you of being a fellow-countryman. "'I am Irish, you know.' She turned and looked up at Deerhurst. The old peer again bent forward interestedly. "'Indeed,' he exclaimed, "'then we have a bond of sympathy. "'Some of my best friends come from Ireland.' His voice was high and possessed no fullness, but he had the same courteously ingratiating manner that belonged to his nephew, while a larger acquaintance with the world had taught him an adaptability to circumstances and persons that Serico had not troubled to acquire. As he spoke now, he brought a tone of deference and friendliness into his words that touched Clodagh to a feeling of companionship. "'Then you know Ireland,' she said quickly. "'Very well indeed.' Her expression softened. "'When were you there last?' she asked in a low voice. Uh, "'Last autumn. I was staying at Arranmore with—' "'With Lord Muskere, I know, I know. Why, you were in our county. My father often and often stayed at Arranmore before—' She checked herself hastily. "'Oh, long ago, before—before before I was born,' she added a little awkwardly. "'It was from a stream that runs near there that he took my name, Clawler. "'Indeed, what a charming idea!' Deerhurst raised his gold-rimmed eyeglass and peered at her through the dusk. At the same moment Serico leaned forward in his seat. "'Clodagh,' he repeated. "'Clodagh! What a pretty name!' Once more, and without apparent reason, Clodagh felt her heart beat unevenly. With a short laugh she turned to Barnard. "'And you, Mr. Barnard?' she said hastily. "'Do you like the name?' Barnard made a suave gesture. "'I say that it fits its owner.' Once more she laughed with a tinge of nervous excitement. "'A very guarded statement,' she said brightly. "'I think we'd better talk about something else. "'Who are the people I am to meet here? "'Mr. Barnard kindly wants to provide me with new friends.' She turned again to Deerhurst. "'Indeed!' Once more he lifted the gold-rimmed glass, this time to study Barnard. "'Yes,' broke in Barnard genially. "'Mrs. Milbank's husband and I have met here to talk shop, "'and I have a shrewd presentiment that, "'unless we provide her with a diverting channel or two, "'Mrs. Milbank will find Venice a bore.' "'I could never do that.' Clodagh turned an animated face towards the dark flotilla, on the outskirts of which their own gondola was hovering. "'But, my dear lady, even Venice can become uninteresting and dry, paradoxical as it may sound,' Barnard returned airily. "'My proposal,' he explained, "'is that I should make Francis Hope and Mrs. Milbank known to each other. Don't you think the idea brilliant?' "'Quite, quite,' Serico looked up interestedly. "'You are a man of ideas, Barney.' Lord Deerhurst said nothing, but again his eyeglass gleamed in the uncertain light. "'What is Lady Frances Hope like?' Clodagh asked, suddenly withdrawing her gaze from the massed gondolas that swayed in the musician's lantern light. "'Like?' Serico repeated vaguely. "'How would you describe her uncle? "'The sort of woman who does everything twice as well as anybody else, and at half the cost, eh?' Lord Deerhurst gave one of his thin, metallic laughs. "'I always think,' he said slowly, that if Francis Hope had been the child of a milkman instead of a marquis, 
she would have made a singularly successful adventuress. No reflection cast upon the late Sammy, my dear Barnard. He waved his white hand, and the dim, uncertain light gleamed on a magnificent diamond ring. Barnard laughed with a tolerant air. Rather an apt deduction, he admitted. I'm inclined to agree with you. Frances is just one of those shrewd, plain-looking, attractive women who enjoy climbing steep ladders. Rather a pity she was born on the top rung. But I believe we have frightened Mrs. Milbank. He turned suddenly, and caught Clodagh's expression as she sat forward, listening intently. At the mention of her name, she laughed quickly, and leant back against the cushions of her seat. "'What do you mean?' she asked with a touch of constraint. "'Am I as childish as all that?' They all looked at her, and Barnard gave an amused laugh. "'Oh, come!' he cried banteringly. "'There's no use telling me you weren't just a little shocked.' "'Shocked?' "'Yes, shocked.' He nodded his head once or twice in genial gaiety. "'There's no denying that the word adventurous has a daunting sound. There was a danger signal in the very thought of a lady who might, under any conditions, have been notorious. Come now, confess!' Clodagh looked from his amused, quizzical eyes to Serico's satirical, laughing ones, and a shadow of uncertainty, of doubt, crossed her own bright face. There was an element in this social atmosphere— that she did not quite understand. "'Indeed!' she began hotly. But Serico, whose glance had never left her own, bent forward quickly, looking up into her face. "'I say, Mrs. Milbank,' he cried, "'let's refute the insinuation of this old inquisitor. Let's wave ceremony and storm Lady Frances Hope in her citadel. She's always at home at this hour of night.' Clodagh looked up. "'Tonight?' she said. "'Oh, but how could I? I don't know her.' Serico laughed. "'Oh, as for that, we're abroad, not in England. The greatest stickler for etiquette allows that there's a difference in the two conditions.' "'But I couldn't. How could I?' Her eyes sought Barnard's. "'Oh, yes,' he cried. "'I knew it. I knew it. We've have frightened you off.' She flushed uncomfortably. "'It isn't that,' she cried in distress. "'You know it isn't that.' Involuntarily she turned to Lord Deerhurst, but in the dim light she detected a smile on his pale, cold face. With a sudden change of emotion, self-reliance came to her. "'Where does Lady Frances Hope live?' she asked in a careless voice. Barnard was studying her intently. "'She has apartments in the Palazzo Ugocini,' he said. "'Quite close at hand.' For a moment Clodagh looked fixedly in front of her. Then her lips closed suddenly, and she raised her head. "'Very well,' she said shortly. "'Take me to the Palazzo Ugocini, just to prove that you were wrong.'" End of Part 3, Chapter 4